The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 23, Star Wars by Marvel Comics, Part 3. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris-King, and in this episode, we'll be diving back into part three of our epic multi-year discussion of Marvel's Star Wars. First, I just want to apologize particularly to my guest confessor for the incredibly long delay between the last episode and this episode. As I just mentioned a little tongue-in-cheek, this is a multi-year discussion. Of course, there are actual discussions um, that go into the making of this uh, podcast series didn't take quite that long. They did actually stretch out over a period of several months, but... Um, it's been now uh, over a full year since I was able to post the last episode, and I just wanted to discuss that real quick. Again, I want to apologize to everyone who's been waiting. I do appreciate everyone that continues to download and listen to the podcast and give positive feedback. There's a few reasons why it's taken so long to get to this next episode. Uh, part of it is just a number of um, things that happened in real life. Uh, you may have noticed that my name has changed. That's because I uh, got married at the end of last year. And there have been a number of other significant uh, life events that have really slowed me down in my uh, pursuit of doing the podcast. Um, but honestly, the main reason it's taken so long is simply the editing of this episode and next episode have been tremendously difficult. When we were recording, we had a lot of difficulty. We were recording via Skype and there was some sort of of problem with the service and it resulted in audio quality that is patchy at best and it's requiring me an incredible amount of time to piece together the usable portions. There will be some sections in um, both this episode and the next episode where I've had to sort of re-record a little bit of the explanation because the original audio was lost. And uh, I apologize um, for that. I'm going to do my best to get the audio quality up to standard so that everything you listen to is um, listenable and easy to understand. Something I particularly want to do because my guest confessor has been so patient and he also had uh, so much interesting insight into Marvel's Star Wars series that I want to make sure you can hear all of uh, what he had to say. Now, in the first two episodes, we covered issues 1 through 38, and beginning in this episode, we're going to jump in starting with issue 39, We're also, which is the beginning of the adaptation of The Empire Strikes Back, and we'll get into some of the stuff that happened with the changing creative teams after Archie Goodwin left with issue 50. And I also just want to mention that originally this was supposed to be part three of four, but I still have so many hours of recording left that uh, we will probably go at least five episodes with this Star Wars series, possibly even six, although I'm going to do my best to keep it to five. So again, thanks so much for your patience with this. I hope you enjoy listening to it, and let's jump right in. It's interesting. I know you you mentioned that you have quite a bit you want to say about The Empire Strikes Back adaptation. Uh, I might got to be honest, I didn't I don't really have many notes on it. I, I mean, the art's fantastic. 
Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's incredible. It's possible I just didn't give it as close a reading as I should have. Compared to the adaptation of, of the first movie, I didn't notice as many like major deviations from what you see on the screen uh, in this adaptation. I would, I would agree with that too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably fair to say that it's closer. However, there are... Um, I mean, there are some fairly major uh, things that are included um, in the in the uh, adaptation that that were left on the cutting room floor, um, such as you know when they're in the uh, when they're on Hoth at the beginning in the base, you have this whole subplot about these Wampa creatures that are loose inside the base, um, which you know was in the shooting script. But um, and, and actually in the adaptation that. You know, they were, they were absolutely right to cut that from the film. But in the adaptation, the comic adaptation, actually that works quite well because th that's basically dealt with in the very first issue. And it just gives a really nice sort of kind of almost like a subplot, but, but like a, a sort of a, a subplot source of kind of menace, if you like, um, while the story's gathering pace. Because it's not really until the Empire get to Hoth and, you know, you've got the like the Atat Walkers and stuff like that. that that's obviously, you know, really action-packed and, you know, but the the sort of first part of the film, you know, other than the sort of peril of Luke being lost and, you know, uh, Han has to find him and stuff like that. It, actually, in the comic, it works well because it, it gives that extra layer of, oh, there are monsters loose inside the Rebel base. You know, it's just a, it's just an extra sort of thing, you know, which, yeah, I think works well. But, but yeah, the thing with me, I mean, I loved that, um, that adaptation. I had a, a hardback annual um, that was... Uh, given to me for the sort of christmas 1980 or whatever um and i just you know that was really my first sort of introduction to um al williamson's art and of course it's i mean it's really nice it's very photorealistic but it's also um it's very comic booky you know that's the great thing about his art that doesn't sacrifice any of that sort of comic bookiness you know um for want of a better word, you know, uh, for a start, it, it, the actors looked, you know, the, sorry, the characters looked like the actors. So, you know, Princess Leia looked like Princess Leia, you know, Harrison, the uh, uh, Han Solo looked like Harrison Ford, you know, it was, it was that sort of thing. And of course you've got all that lovely, um, there's so much detail in his panels as well. You know, you, you, you sort of read it and obviously you're focusing on the foreground, but then there's all this luscious sort of detail. Um, and that really, really comes into its own a bit later on when you get to Dagobah, you know, and it's the sort of tangled vines and kind of swamp uh, ecosystem. And it really looks like a sort of a living, breathing ecosystem. And I, even as a kid, you know, I'd, I'd read that annually, you know, which was just the adaptation in its entirety. I'd read it over and over again. And I'd love to sort of look at the panels and, and sort of think, oh, I wonder what's just behind that boulder just around the corner from that that um you know it made you want to jump into the artwork and actually explore it looked so you know a Dagobah really looked like a I don't know like a living breathing you know alien ecosystem you know and that's um I think it's yeah. interesting with when with the Star Wars adaptation they did it as the comic book first and then they collected it whereas with this one they did it the other way around they published like this uh, oversized actually a couple of different formats if i understand correctly like an oversized in the states the, yeah in that's the right, states yeah. and then they serialized it and when they did that they were able to make corrections to the artwork based on what the movie actually looked like compared to their working script i think the main change was the appearance of yoda if i remember correctly that's right uh it was the um the very first published 
um, sort of version of it, if, if you like, was the uh, a little tiny paperback book, and it was called something like the Marvel Comics Illustrated Edition of The Empire Strikes Back or something like that. And that was the one that had the sort of purpley, white-haired Yoda, which very much looks like the very early Ralph McQuarrie production paintings um they also released it as like a yeah like a treasury sized um a, a thing and also as a magazine i think before it was actually serialized in the regular thing but all of the other versions in the state had the right redrawn yoda the one that actually looked like the frank oz puppet it was only that very first um you know uh, paperback book that, that actually sort of had it but in in the uk it's really weird because in the uk they they in, in in the comic, the weekly comic, they reprinted the sort of improved doctored version with the correct looking version of Yoda. Uh, but when they collected it as an annual, uh, it was the you know it was like the uh, the earlier version. I mean, interestingly, you know, the, there were things like the space slug, you know, the big space slug in the asteroid field. Yes. Uh, they weren't allowed to show that, so you you just get you know because. Lucasfilm insisted that they didn't do that. But Lucasfilm must have been really happy with Williamson's lush pencils, especially compared with Infantino. That is what Archie Goodwin told Al Williamson. He, when, when they began work on The Empire Strikes Back, which was, I guess, mid-1979, uh, he told him that, that Lucas really was not a fan of uh, Infantino's artwork on the series and did not, under any circumstances, want him to be drawing the you know long-awaited Star Wars sequel, um, you know. Well, it's interesting. A couple things. Uh, so this the adaptation ran in the regular Star Wars series for six issues from thirty-nine up through forty-four. It's mm-hmm. not long after the end of this that we see the departure both of Carmen Infantino and Al, um, Archie Goodwin. Uh, but also, I, I think what's interesting as well is that straight afterwards the first i i don't know how many off the top of my head i think there's something like three or four standalone issues uh that are archie goodwin or or certainly are um infantino uh, drawing and they're much much better they're some of the best sort of uh infantino are of the of the run and louise jones the editor uh came on board and she had this real thing that like okay from now on you know we've really got to make a real effort to try to make the Star Wars comic look like the Star Wars films. And I think that was because of the adaptation and because, you know, I, th- I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the that Al Williamson's art in that adaptation really pushed the comic to sort of new heights that then other artists that came afterwards had to step up to, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about those issues right afterwards. So issue 45 is Death Probe. Um, oh, yeah. To me, this was this was an okay story. It didn't really stand out to me. It seemed kind of like a, similar to issue 38, which came just before, where it was sort of a one-off. It didn't really necessarily feel that connected to the rest of events. I thought it was okay, but... Actually, I have to say, I think it's a really great uh, standalone issue. There's some really nice um, attention to detail. You know, that you, you have things in it with Luke sort of saying... Uh, you know, uh, about his cybernetic hand and stuff like that. So it carries on nicely. Obviously, there's a, a probe droid, but this is like a probe droid on steroids kind of thing. So it's like they've taken one of the new pieces of technology that we've seen in the recent sequel in, you know, in The Empire Strikes Back, and they're running with that straight off the bat. But also the mood of it. I think what's really interesting about that, 
the very first issue after the Empire Strikes Back, it's much darker. You know, it's and even like there's a there's a, a level of violence in it that is slightly just slightly more mature than than what had come before, and it it really seemed like the comic sort of shifted tone slightly to reflect that sort of darker mood of. Um, well, I guess for me it was overshadowed a little by issue forty six, which is uh, I think a pretty well known issue. Cody Sunchild. The, yeah, the dreams of Cody Sunchild. Uh, yeah, written by J M uh, Dematius. Although he changed his name on the, he called himself. Uh, Wally Lumbago, I think. Again, what's really interesting about that is that um, the the main thing you have to understand about the dreams of Cody Sunshine was, was that it was quite a personal story for J.M. Dematius because he just had a son, his and the son's name was Cody, so it's like you know this, it was a son, son, child, you know. And in the original uh, ending, he wrote this ending where Cody, you know, who was this great warrior who'd become like a sort of pacifist, he's tempted to return to his old sort of violent ways um but he decides crucially he decides it's better to allow himself to be killed you know to die for sort of like a, a dream of, of, of peace however when that was submitted to lucasfilm you know the people at lucasfilm were like no 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 this is no good you know if if they have him taking the higher moral ground becoming you know makes our characters look bad um so they forced him to change it and you know i think i think uh that in the retool sort of ending lando explains oh you know that was a very honorable thing for cody to do but cody was wrong he sacrificed himself for a dream but actually you know such um ideals if you like aren't really enough uh or aren't really sort of realistic when you're dealing with something as evil as the anyway you right know, and de- so Dimitis he ended up changed he as you mentioned he took his name off of it because he was ticked off yeah, that ticks off. But what's interesting is that the art must have shipped to the UK because we got the original ending. Not only did we get the original ending, but it also was it was credited to you know Dematius. It was it was, and um, I actually emailed him. And actually, somebody had got there before me and had, had sort of clued him into it. But I mean, for, for decades, he had no idea that it had been published anywhere else in the world in its original form. Uh, so yeah, he was you know very happy about that. Um, but it's an interesting issue, just forgetting all the controversy about it and stuff like that. It's an interesting issue because I think we were talking about this before, that it's obviously they really run with what is a really new character, Lando Carizian, and they have him as the star of the book, sort of almost straight off the bat. You know? Yeah, I thought it was very interesting when they pick it up mm. pretty much right where Empire leaves off, where it's Lando and Chewie are in the Millennium Falcon. They're searching for Han Solo. Mm-hmm. And... It, as I mentioned before, it really struck me as something where if, if you had been reading this as you were as a kid, mm. it would make Lando a much bigger character than for people who weren't reading the comic and only were just going off of the movies. That's right. Um, and I'd not really thought of that before, but I think you're absolutely right. Like when, when I saw Return of the Jedi and, and Lando's there, it's like that was a, you know, a really well-known character to me. But I guess... I guess you're right. To other people who maybe weren't reading it, they'd only seen him for about 10 minutes at the end of The Empire Strikes Back. He was still a pretty, you know, unknown or sort of or a very new sort of unfleshed out sort of character. But to me, you know, he was completely three dimensional. And that was, again, I think this is one of the things that the comic did at its best. You know, it was it supplemented the movies and, and explored you know, characters that perhaps the movies just didn't have time to, you know? So there are a couple other things in this issue that I found interesting. One is just the story to me, it struck me as a very classic, uh, sort of sci-fi story of, of, you know, about non-involvement. Like in the Blackhawk podcast I did, there was an issue of Blackhawk with a similar plot line where there's a group of these people that have 
decided to stay out of World War II and not get involved because they have this sort of um, peace agenda. And basically, in that story, Blackhawk convinces them that it's similar to what Lando says at the end of this issue. He convinces them that this idea of peace is kind of a pipe dream. They have to fight for what's right and, and stuff. The other thing that struck me here was Cody Sunshot himself. As I mentioned previously, I, I was noticing when going through this, a theme of a lot of one-off uh, Jedi characters where we have characters like Cody who are actually Jedi or characters who think they're Jedi and may or may not be like Don Juan Quixote. And we're going to see another stand-in for Jedi Knights in issue 49. We get a number of these characters who sort of uh, it's, uh, it felt to, feels to me in a lot of these where the the writers want to work with a Jedi, but they're very constrained by Lucas and what they can actually do. So they either use stand-ins, or in this case, they have someone who's <clears throat> only in there for one issue, and then they get rid of them so they don't have to actually deal with the Jedi stuff. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, I would just say, I don't think Cody Sunchild is a Jedi. I think he just was a great warrior from the sort of time of the Clone Wars. I don't think he's actually ever referred to as a, a Jedi, I mean, unless I'm mistake and i don't i don't think he is anyway but he's this essentially he's this great warrior that that lando idolized as a child you know um heard stories about and that kind of thing and and of course as you were saying that he you know at the end it's like lando realizes that it's a bit of a pipe dream but of course that's that's not the ending that uh, as it was originally intended the uh, the idea originally was you know and i think right at the very end there's a different sort of thing as well where lando just goes off and leaves the imperials but in the retooled ending he goes off and purposely leaves them trapped to rot in this dimension you know it's kind of i mean it's kind of cold in a way you know but- so after that issue 47 it's a it's another interesting one. It's another one shot. It's but it returns to this theme that Goodwin has of these anti-droid prejudice and sort of brings that out to the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you've got this whole uh, and again we see this sort of that prejudice also crosses over to cyborgs because uh Clickson who who is this um guy, the cyborg who who sort of runs this space station populated by droids the the sort of droid world of the uh, of the title of the comic you know he's decided to to um to turn his back on on the rest of the galaxy for that and surround himself with mechanicals you know that's uh, droid world is always one of those issues that for me has always been a bit kind of like nah, you know even when, uh, when i first read it at the time as you were saying like it, it's never it wasn't an issue that really jumped out to me as being particularly good it was just more thematically interesting because this is something that goodwin just keeps coming back to it's interesting comic in terms of, you know, uh, R2 and 3PO are the heroes. It basically follows them. I think that's, I think that's interesting, you know, um, and a little bit of a different, um, you know, a little bit of change of a pace, whatever, you know. Um, but it's not, it's never been an issue that I've loved. It's always just sort of, yeah, it's right. <laughs> so in issue 48, we get another spotlight issue. It is interesting, right, coming right out of Empire Strikes Back, we get not just a series of one shots, but they're one shots that focus on different characters. So 45 mm. was um, Luke Skywalker, 46 was Lando and Chewie, 47 is R2D2 and C3PO, 48, we get a Princess Leia spotlight issue written by Larry Hama, where she faces off against Vader in a very unusual way where they're uh scheming against each other on this planet but not exactly outright fighting they're just sort of trying to outthink each other yeah uh it's a deeply flawed issue i think again it's one of those ones that's never really been one of my favorites 
it's a mess you know it is just a mess there's i think you know the good things are that there's lots of plot twists i like the sort of intrigue of it it's very sort of it's a very diplomatic story isn't it you know it's lots of sort of diplomacy and sort of subterfuge and um that kind of thing because obviously on this planet uh argal i think it's pronounced argal this this they, they have a uh you know it's like a sort of a banking planet isn't it and they're mm-hmm. uh, they're they're not allowed to have any any weapons um so you have this thing where they've got a you know face off but they're not allowed to sort of that's the thing with me anyway there's lots of little things like that it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense like she's got the 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 you know the jewels of alderaan or whatever with her isn't she on the planet i seem to remember and you just think well surely they would have been with the royal family of alderaan at the time when the planet was destroyed wouldn't they why would leia have them she was in you know it just it, it, and i know that maybe that's nitpicky but the other thing is that um this is the first time that she's come face to face with vader since han solo her lover you know that she's had this kind of on-off relationship with and it's finally in the empire strikes back has become this thing where they've actually kissed and she's admitted to herself as much as anybody that she's in love with this is the guy that essentially put him in in um in carbonite and almost killed him and and they're face to face and there's it's, that's not addressed in any way uh, and that doesn't sit well with me either that's like you know you'd think she'd be really angry and she no isn't. i agree i feel like this i like this story except for it doesn't make any sense with these characters yeah, i feel like it's a good story for other characters if there was a different bad guy in it like it's interesting to see her invader trying to outsmart each other but my note for this was that it's an interesting story i like the twist ending where it turns out that vader wins even though you think that the yes. is one However, yes. this it just didn't feel like Darth Vader at all. Like Darth Vader's to me is not like uh, you know a sneaky schemer. That's not really his personality. So the way he operates in yeah, this issue, where he's sort of he's also deferring to the bank, uh, and I'm like, that's not the Vader that took over Cloud City at Bespin. This is a totally different guy who doesn't want to insult his hosts because uh, he's trying to impress them. He needs them. And uh, that doesn't feel like Vader at all. Vader, to me, feels like he's going to go in there, and if they don't do what he says, they're all going to be dead in five minutes. I, I agree. If it's this kind of mission, you don't send Vader. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the, the, the character of Viscount Tardy is, for some reason, that's to me, that's a very memorable character. It's just a bit of a mess. It's not that it's really all that bad. It's just that it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and maybe you're right with different characters it could have been a much better story you know so another interesting thing here is starting with the next issue issue 49 no more carmen infantino he's gone i mean i know we've talked a lot about infantino's artwork and you know how much everybody hates it (laughs) it's a little some people love it though don't they he leaves an interesting legacy on this book as you we talked about earlier I think his main legacy is driving away millions of potential readers. Starting with issue 49, where we get the team of Walt Simonson uh, on pencils and Tom Palmer on the finishes. And Dream every, team. <laughs> everything looks much, much more Star Wars all of a sudden. It does. It does. Um, I don't really like that issue. I think it's really, really flawed, but it's a real fan favorite. I remember when I did my reviews and I was like, I kind of was quite brutal about it really and people were like oh my god this is like a great issue how can you not like this but again i just think it's very very flawed the art is superb the art looks amazing it's um 
as you say, you've got this um, this Jedi uh, who, or, or it's, you know, wants to be a Jedi. His name is Jedediah for a start. Now, right off the book, it's like so there's a Jedi called Jedediah. I mean, that's uh, to me that's just it's just rubbed. Um, Don Juan Quixote and Jedediah. Well, that's better. At least that's got some kind of wit to it or something. You know, uh, this is just what. Well, it's, see, he's a Jedi and he dies. It's Jedediah. It makes so much sense. Yeah, brilliant. That's some <laughs> top draw writing there. No, I just, I, I, even at the time, I just thought, what? I think he's a really interesting character design. I like the sort of look of it. The, one of the main things with this is that Luke is an utter dick in that, in that issue. Because Jedediah is this, um, you know, wannabe Jedi. He's also brain damaged, okay, because he's in this crash that they've had. He's... Yeah, he's clearly not right in the head. He's received some sort of brain damage from that. And yet, despite that fact, Luke, being his petulant self, gets all in a bunch because he feels like this guy is disrespecting the great Jedi legacy. Uh, and that's kind of hilarious when you think about it, because what does Luke know about the Jedi legacy at this point? Pretty much nothing. Um, I also know that the other thing that really bothered you with this issue was the way Leia was once again kind of acting out a character where she sort of falls for this random prince guy. It doesn't make much sense. You know, she's supposed to, she basically forgets all about Han for this dashing prince like almost overnight. And she's, I think she's even considering marrying him, isn't she? I mean, I'm a little bit hazy on this, but yeah, I think you're right about this being done. This it should be pointed out. This is another one-off story, but it's it's um it's not written by Archie Goodwin like the previous issue 48. This was written by a fill-in writer. In this case, it's Mike W. Barr, and uh, I think some of the the characterization issues in both 48 and 49 with Leia can be chalked up to not just this not being the regular writer, but I have a suspicion that some of these were written around the same time that Archie Goodwin was working on the adaptation in order to give him some breathing room to do that. Well, in these sort of early, um, uh, uh, you know, post Empire Strikes Back um, issues, there is a glaring continuity problem. Well, in fact, it's not even in the early issues. It goes all the way through that Luke has a lightsaber with him. He has a blue lightsaber in all of these issues, like in Death Probe, uh, in this one, you know, uh, and, and all the way through the run. Uh, and of course, he lost it at, at, uh, at Bespin Cloud City. So there's this recurring, you know, continuity issue, essentially, which I, you know, I'm sure is just because Marvel wanted him to have his lightsaber, you know, because that's his quintessential weapon, isn't it? You know, yeah, I can't believe that that's a mistake. I, I, to me, that must be an intentional thing that they've decided will look. Luke has lost his lightsaber in, in the Empire Strikes Back, but we can't have three years of him, you know, without his signature weapon, you know, because if you take that away, then you, really you're not going to see any lightsabers in the comic for, for three years, you know? So I think they just sort of thought, oh, well, nobody will notice. And actually, as a kid, I didn't. It didn't even cross my mind. I have to be honest. It's only later that you suddenly think, hang on a minute, maybe they just had an old, an old blue lightsaber hanging around the rebel base or something. I don't know. So with issue 50, we get an interesting story that is also important because it's it's the last issue Archie Go, and I was about to say the last regular issue, but as we've seen, we've had multiple fill-ins here. Mm -hmm. So even going as far back as issue 38 before the uh, Empire Strikes Back adaptation, the this last year or so of his run has been really broken up by a lot of fill-ins. So it's almost like he's filling in again on his own run to close things out with issue 50, where we get this uh, special extra large story with a flashback to Han Solo. I thought reading this that we were going to be getting a lot more of this. I was like, okay, here's how they're going to keep Han in the story for the next two and a half years. 
is they're going to have a bunch of flashback stories with Han, but we right. don't really end up getting that many of them. No. Um, and again, I think that the this is one of the things, you know, for me, the, the strongest period of the comic is between the, those two movies, is between Empire and Return of the Jedi. And uh, they did really well to, uh, you know, churn out some really good stories with one of the, you know, main three cast members basically entirely absent. Um, and arguably, he's the most interesting character as well. The flashback sequences in issue 50 were actually written for Pizzazz. They were, so they're much older in terms of when they, they were are. created. Yeah, that's absolutely right. They were, they were done, I think, sort of, I don't know, like, say it was 78 or something like that whenever pizzazz would have been cancelled they were they were for that but the thing about the the crimson forever this 50th anniversary is that it's um it's fantastic i mean it's a great great comic it's one of the best comics it's got al williamson again on art with walt simonson doing some of the later stuff but it feels like sort of like episode 5.5 you know it, it it sort of feels like a missing you know, it could be a movie. It could be an adaptation of a movie that is between, you know, Empire and, and Return of the Jedi. There's that lovely painted cover to it, which I think sort of adds to that. It's almost like a sort of a, a, an unused movie poster. You know, it, that that's the thing I've always thought. And it's also interesting. It sort of wraps up some of Archie Goodwin's longer arcs tag, because, it, yes, it, it brings that, yeah. the uh, the tage, the tags the Tage family, yeah. Whoever they are, they're back, and <laughs> this is more or less the last time we we see them. No, I think this is it. I think this is the last sort of mention, and the last time we see any of the the Tage or the Tag family or whatever they're called. I love the way at the end as well that it's sort of left open. It's like I think like is, is it Lando uh, uh, tells the bounty hunters because you know she's with like IG88 and Dengar. And he tells her, he tells them, oh, by the way, there should be a, a hefty price on on her head and then sends them off. And it's like, well, what happened to her? You know, did they turn on her? Did she manage to, you know, is she still out there somewhere? Was she, did they kill her? You know, bring up, you know, uh, it's left open, but of course they never return to it. I think they do some good work with Lando in some of these stories where we see the differences between Lando's as a character and Han as a character, because they theoretically fill a very similar role. They're both sort of right. a roguish bounty, like, um, you know, smugglers, uh, but they have very different styles. And I think this is a really good instance of Lando doing something in a Lando way that is not the way Han would have handled it. I think you're right. And um, I think even, you know, earlier, earlier on than this, you know, with the, the, the dreams of Cody's son child, right off the bat, I think they really nailed who Lando was and what his character was, you know, would have been very easy for them to just write him as a, another, you know, a Han Mark II. Uh, and they don't. And rightly so, because he isn't. So, yeah, they very, very quickly got um, got a handle on his, you know, the subtle difference between his character and, say, Han's. And uh, okay. So after this issue, starting with issue 51, we get... We get a two-parter um, with by writer David Michelinie. This is his first uh, arc, and he's going to become yeah. the regular writer. And I think for a lot of people, they consider him to be the best Star Wars writer. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I mean, I would. Yeah, you know, Joe Duff is pretty pretty good. Well, and there's really only been... three. Like, ma- I, yes. would, I would say there's uh, only yeah. three main writers. It's interesting yes. because we're about to see in the next arc, not to jump ahead, we're going to see a two-part fill-in by Chris Claremont, and he sort of sniffs around the edge. He does a lot of like little annuals and. 
mm-hmm. fill-ins and yeah. stuff, but he never, I don't know if he just didn't have the time because he was doing X-Men, X-Men or, yeah. or what, yeah. but he's like, there's there's the clear, you know, Goodwin, Michelinie, and Joe Duffy, those are the three writers for really the whole run, And but there's all these people that do little one-shot fill-ins, and Claremont did quite a number of them. Yeah, a good sort of half a dozen maybe including some of the um you know the uk ones because he did like the world of fire that we were talking about earlier and and stuff like that um, so for issues 51 and 52 we get this two-parter by david michelini which i think sort of show the strengths of his run even before he's really gotten into it first of all yeah we get this story which is very similar he's got this super weapon similar to the death star it's called the tarkin after grand right. Moth tarkin and so uh, you feel that it's very rooted in Star Wars. Like, of, of all the writers, to me, Michelinie's feels the most like Star Wars. He's drawing a lot of plot elements out of the movies and continuing them into his stories. The other thing in here that I really liked, and I really wanted to see more of this because I thought it was going to become an ongoing subplot, is that there's this group of Imperial officers who are secretly plotting against Vader because Mm. they're like, Vader is dragging us all down with him and he's just a dangerous loose cannon. We need to get rid of Vader. I was really hoping that was going to become an ongoing subplot because I found it really interesting. Yeah, great. That's a really great um, uh, subplot. Absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with everything you're saying uh, about uh, Michelini. Uh, he really hits the ground running here with this. Um, so much so, in fact, you know, his original idea was for this was um, for them to build a second Death Star, which, of course, you know, is completely preempting the events of, of Return of the Jedi by around two years. Um, and, of course... You know, he submits this script with like, yeah, the Empire building this new Death Star. And of course, the people at Lucasfilm are like, what? What? No, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. you can't do this. You can't do this. Um, yeah, and they sort of, yeah, they basically put a stop to it. They couldn't explain why. It's an interference by Lucasfilms that is understandable uh, to a degree that some of their other interferences, especially later on in the series, just seem start to seem pretty inexplicable. But this one makes perfect sense. Yeah, of course it does. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I think that that is testament to how well he understood, you know, Michelini. Um, Simonson as well, you know, he, again, is, is drawing the art very faithfully. It looks like a Star Wars movie. You know, you can almost hear like the Star Wars music swelling as you as you read it. But unfortunately, with that subplot of the Imperial officers plotting against Vader, we don't really see that picked up. That's going to be a little bit of a complaint that I have throughout Michelinie's run, where he has a lot of good ideas that I thought were setting things up. And partially because he isn't on the book for that long, a, a lot of those ideas end up kind of not developing. Um, um, I, I, yeah, I guess, I guess you could be right. I mean, it's sort of hard for me to really sort of comment in some ways, because to me, you know, I mean, it was wrapped up. In, in terms of it's wrapped up in the next issue. and They almost take Vader out, uh, but he uses the Force to keep himself from getting shot out the airlock. Uh, That's it. And, yeah. and then when the door closes, you get this shot of like the officer who did it sort of look just as look on his face like, well, I'm fucked. <laughs> yeah that's right and doesn't he then use the force to compel him to walk out of the airlock himself or whatever that's i didn't think when reading that sequence that vader using the force to keep himself from being killed by the vacuum of space uh was similar in a much less goofy way to in the last jedi movie where princess leia went turned into space mary poppins and yeah one of the most i mean i laughed out loud when i saw that in the cinema whereas in this scene when when vader uses it to keep from getting killed by the airlock 
it's it's like it, there's a power to that sequence and, you, and oh, like, yeah. it's scary yeah oh yeah absolutely and again this is you know simonson's art you know it's it's fantastic but but again you know i mean straight off the bat in that first issue he has luke doing the jello mind trick he writes in the franchise kind of catchphrase of i've got a bad feeling about this and it very yeah he really gets it right off the bat McLeany. you know the other thing i like about his run and i think you get you get to see that even this early on is that he's very very good at giving rebel foot soldiers and imperial foot soldiers personalities you get a recurring thing in his run is that you get these little asides where you know people that you don't even know their name they're just they're really little bit part background characters and he gives them bits of dialogue and he sort of tries to show you what it's like for the people in the rebellion or the people in the empire that aren't you know the main stars you know that that are just the the foot soldiers and as a kid even reading it i really appreciated that it made even stormtroopers you know uh, i think i'm right in saying he's the first person in the comic series in the marvel series to show them without their helmets on uh so it instantly humanizes them you know you can see that that they are just men in armor he really does a lot with other people in the empire uh i felt like yes. during the goodwin run they were really hamstrung because they couldn't use vader much and so he you know he had the 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 Tajes. i think i nailed the pronunciation on that i felt like there was a villain problem during most of goodwin's runs Michelini has other members of the Empire that menace them in different ways from the way Vader does. Before Michelini has a chance to really get into stuff, though, we are interrupted right away with a two-parter, a two-part fill-in story by Chris Claremont with a very strange uh, mix of artists because we the penciler is listed as is both infantino and simonson so i don't know if infantino there might have been uh, again more of the old work being reused here and i just didn't notice it or he was maybe doing layouts i'm not quite sure what was going on with the art here well you know you know this was a um this was an unused john carter warlord of mars uh-huh. see it's funny you should say that because i have in my notes here <laughs> star wars meets john carter this feels like an intentional mashup i did not know that that was actually no, an inventory story was, okay it was it was exactly that it was an inventory story i think what was going on at marvel at the time from what i've read a lot of books were slipping behind there was a bit of a thing going on in sort of 81 into 82 where books were sort of coming out late and the powers that be at marvel it was decided that they would take try and clear out the inventory and apparently this happened in lots of different titles in star wars what happened was they had a couple of or i don't know like a, a some old infantino art for john you know for a, an unused issue of um uh, john carter warlord of mars and they just decided to basically turn it into a star wars story but what's really interesting is because you as you say simonson's also credited as the artist the framing sequence where leia is brought along to you know she crashes on this planet that's all drawn by simonson but it really really looks like carmen infantino and so what you've got is like Walt simonson doing his best to draw like carmen infantino which is which is a strange idea <laughs> The idea that Walt Simonson, who is like the savior of the comic in terms of the art, is intentionally making his artwork look like Carmen Infantino is is kind of mind-blowing to me that that anyone would allow that to happen at this point. (laughs) But I guess, you know, he has to sort of try and make it sort of join on to this uh, thing. Because once Leia is... Once Leia is 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 down at the uh, on the planet's surface, it very very clearly 
is, you know, Infantino, and it very, very clearly is a John Carter story. Oh, yeah, um, it jumped right out, even though I didn't know that was the case. I was like, what What the? What yeah. comic am I reading? What the hell is happening here? Yeah, that's right. We you know they, they're given different names. Obviously, it's not, you know, it's not um, Deja Thoris and all of that. And that's also why, you know, there, there's those, which as a kid, you know, I loved, but, you know, there's those giant stormtroopers in this, in this, and that's because they were you know, Tharks, the, Yeah, I think I think that's what they're. Called. Yeah, they, they were Tharks, and it was and and Simonson redrew them. It's it's really interesting just how obvious this uh, was, how obvious this is that it was originally a John Carter story. But mm. one reason I think I didn't realize it was actually a John Carter story is we're one thing I think we see, and we're going to see more of this coming up shortly, is a lot of times when we have fill-in issues, they feel like less like Star Wars stories, but they're stories from different genres, fantasy, sci-fi, crime, whatever, that have just been given like a Star Wars coat of paint. Um, we'll talk about this right, more like right. when we get to Annual 2. The only note I have for Annual 2, which we'll get to in a little while, is that it's basically a Conan story. It's just set in the Star Wars universe. And I, I feel like we see that a lot with fill-in issues where someone's telling the story that isn't necessarily part of the Star Wars universe, but they were, then they just give it a little coat of paint and like, yeah, Star Wars, sure. That's interesting. I mean, you know, with this, I, I think this holds up really considering what a mishmash of, you know, styles it is. And certainly on the second issue, you can very much more see, okay, that's Walt Simonson doing the art now. I think it's an interesting look at Leia and how she still carries these demons about, the, you know, the destruction of her homeworld, which anybody would. I mean, if you if you try to put yourself in that position and imagine everything that you'd known. I mean, the Earth was destroyed and everything you knew and everybody you loved was gone just like that, you know, in the blink of an eye. That would... Obviously, you know, I mean, you'd have massive sort of post-traumatic stress, really. And what we do get to see in this is that a little bit. You're right. Considering what the this two-parter is, it does a pretty good job. But issue 55 for me is where Michelinie's run really takes off. Starting with 55, uh, we start getting uh, some elements that are going to carry through, not just through the rest of his run, but some of them are going to continue to be important for the rest of the whole series. Yeah, that's we, right. We it's get this cliff, thing where it? it's yeah. pliff, yeah. One thing that comes up constantly right from the beginning, I think with issue seven, where after the end of the, the first movie, is there's there, the rebels are constantly looking for a new base there are so many mm -hmm. stories in the series where at the beginning of the issue they're like we've got to find a new base let's see what's on this planet and then they discover whatever the story is for that issue well they're still searching <laughs> for a new base in issue 55 and they encounter on the planet that they visit the this race called the hujib and the hujib are these sort of intergalactic telepathic bunnies who are also energy vampires so mm. they can drain the energy out of technology to, to feed off of. But they're actually uh, very sort of benevolent, and they end up becoming allies for the, for the rebels. Pliff's Pl the leader. Pliff is the leader, right, of the Hujibs. Right. I love the Hujibs, and I love them right off the bat. Um, again, you know, I read online a lot people really being disparaging about them i think you know if, you, if you're one of those people that didn't like the ewoks in return of the jedi you're definitely not going to like the hujib sort of thing i like both i think they're very star warsy things again i just wanted to make a note of of michelini right off the bat here opening splash page of this issue he's basically got speeder bikes 
you know, he's way ahead of the curve here. He's like, you know, it, it's like land speed of motorbikes, you know, way before we saw anything like that in, in Return of the Jedi. Yeah, he was way ahead of the curve. The the other thing that I really liked in this issue, besides the introduction of the Hujibs, which I, I personally am a fan of the Hujibs. They were a major part of the storyline when I started reading in the Joe Duffy era with issue 95. Right, right. Um, but also, you know, when I saw Return of the Jedi, I was 10 years old and people can have whatever revisionist history they want. But as a 10 year old, I loved the Ewoks and the kids liked Ewoks. Uh, now, I understand for people that were like 15 when the first Star Wars came out, maybe they were too old for the Ewoks by the time of the Return of the Jedi came out. But for my money... I love the Ewoks. All the kids my age I knew, we all loved the Ewoks. So They are a quintessentially Star Wars thing, and the Hoojibs are the same. Strangely enough, I felt like Michelini didn't actually use them enough for my taste in the initial run, but they get a lot of play later on during the Joe Duffy era. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but this is, again, really, this is like a sort of a, a done-in-one issue as well, isn't it? But it's obviously tied into, you know, the it's ongoing. A, it's a done-in-one, but I feel like it's set up a lot of things. Yes. Um, you know, my notes here, I felt reading this that I was like, here's a writer that has plans for this series. Like this is mm, setting up mm. stuff that he's going to pay off. He knows where he's going. And the thing that he set up here that I really liked it, we get an immediate payoff in the next two part arc is Lando goes back to the cloud city because he's like, I have loose ends that I need to tie up. You know, I left my people all defend themselves. I need to go back to cloud city. I really liked that a lot. And yeah, Mm. I, I liked the um, and the way it's all deserted and and which it would be because he told everyone to evacuate, didn't he? And it's like a ghost town. Um, and that's kind of creepy as well, you know. And I like that a lot. Sort of creepy cloud city is a good. That's a good aesthetic, you know. <laughs> yeah, I really liked uh, the the two parter in issues fifty six and fifty seven. Orlando go back to goes back to Cloud City. There were a couple things that I thought were a little strange, like Lobot has telekinesis. Maybe that was established at some point, but I don't uh, remember Lobot having telekinesis, but it's, but he has it in this story. There is no, you know, sort of canonical evidence for that in the films or anything. But anyway, something I will just make note of in this thing as well is I loved that they had the Uggernauts in it. They're, they're kind of a bit goofy and like, you know, they've got like you've got like the Uggernaut um, film crew, you know, and stuff like that. It's kind of a bit, it's kind of a bit goofy, but I, I really appreciated and still do the fact that they that they brought the Argonauts into it. The other major thing that happens in this two-part storyline, separate mm-hmm. from what's going on with Lando, is we get the introduction of a new character named... I'm sure everyone's got their own pronunciation of all these Star Wars names that never appeared in films. <laughs> but I'm going to go with Shira Bree. Yeah, Sh- uh, Sh- uh, Shira, I think I say, but yeah, Shira Shira. Yes, great character absolutely great character uh, you know this again you know we're sort of uh, again i don't want to jump too far ahead but we're not that far off from the the whole pariah arc and um you know it's very skillfully done the way that they set shearer up to be this sort of a a really great pilot in and of herself you know um and it's nice to have somebody other than princess leia who's a, a strong female character in the in the thing you know in the rebellion and in the in the comic yeah so for those who haven't read these uh shira or shira brie she's um another uh x-wing pilot and she's sort of introduced as this sidekick's not the word sort of a, a she goes on missions with luke and there's definitely she's got like a lot of confidence there's definitely some flirtation going on and it leads into the next story as you're saying the prior arc from issues 58 to 63 we get this 
big storyline with Luke and uh, Shira and uh, to me this this arc feels like the centerpiece of the Michelini run and and one could argue that this is the most important and maybe the best story in the whole series I yeah for my money in terms of original marvel originated stuff the the prior arc is uh is the best just before we talk about that i should we should just mention that in the issues before that i think it's in 59 where they that's sort of almost like a little bit of a prelude to the the, the sort of prior arc proper because that's where um lando and uh luke skywalker go and and uh, get these um tie fighters the rebel alliance gets uh, like a little squadron of, of of Tie Fighters that they can use to infiltrate the uh, the Empire's base. Yeah, that's right. It's which I thought was a great idea, and still do. I think that it makes a lot of sense. You know, they buy these Tie Fighters on the black market, and they can use them to infiltrate like Imperial armadas and stuff like that. And uh, and of course, that's crucial to the whole sort of Pariah thing, um, the whole Pariah arc with you know the the apparent death of of, of Shira at the hands of luke skywalker yeah so for so for those who haven't read it basically what happens is they're having this attack they're attacking and the empire uh uses this this thing that scrambles their communication so luke of course i'm reading this i'm like luke why don't you tap into the force man but of course he does tap into the force and he can tell someone's about to attack him the force tells him it's an enemy so he shoots them down it turns out that it's actually Shira Bree's ship. And so he suddenly starts questioning everything he knows. He's like, why did the Force, you know, maybe I'm not as good with the Force as I thought. Maybe the Force doesn't work the way I thought. And maybe, you know, whatever. And meanwhile, everyone else is questioning Luke. The rest of the people in the, in the um, rebellion basically turn on Luke uh, and he becomes a pariah. And so he leaves to sort of, try and clear his name and what eventually happens is he discovers that the reason the force told him to shoot is that shira was actually uh, an empire spy that had infiltrated the rebellion uh with the goal of destroying luke either i don't think they but vader didn't want him to die because vader still wants to get him mm. as an apprentice mm. uh, especially so he he wanted Shira to basically destroy Luke's reputation so he would drive him out of the rebellion and into Vader's arms. Yeah, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. And and yeah, the, the whole thing about the pariah thing is that in the very skillfully, you know, Michelini in the build up to that has has made sure that we the reader know that not only is Shira really good, you know, a great pilot in her own right. Not only is she sort of, uh, you know, a bit of a burgeoning love interest for Luke, and he clearly has some kind of interest in her romantically, which of course adds to the angst when he then finds out that he's, you know, killed her or shot her down, and you know, we, as far as we know, she's dead at this point. Um, but also, that it very skillfully has been set up that she's hugely popular within the rebellion at large. Right. She's very popular at the base. I have to say this was the only part of the story that didn't quite work for me where Luke is this hero of the rebellion. who destroyed the death star and everyone turns on him very, very quickly. Yeah. But I don't know. Is that life? <laughs> I mean, aren't you only as good as your last sale? You know, I mean, 
I don't know. To me, it felt very real and it still does when I read it. And I think it's because of the force. I think that, you know, although we, the reader, obviously we know the force is real and we, 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 you know, we, we like Luke and stuff and he's the hero and we followed him. But I think, don't forget, you know, there is, you know, Han Solo is a classic example. There are people who are very distrustful of the force and think it's a load of old mumbo jumbo. And, you know, there's that thing as well. And the, the force that seemingly led him, this magical thing that some people really distrust, uh, you know, even within the rebellion, um, has led him astray. And he's killed this as we, you know, we, we think that she's innocent and hugely popular sort of... Uh, what you say makes sense. I guess I hadn't really thought about it like that. There's also good old-fashioned resentment. Don't forget that Luke has come in to the rebellion uh, in the events of the first Star Wars film and he's blown up the Death Star and he's this... Uh, really, he's... You know, who is he? He's some guy who's just come from sort of Tatooine or whatever. And I think it's very easy to to see why there might be certain people just through sheer jealousy would, you know, behind his back be a little bit like, oh, you know, why has he got all the glory kind of thing? And the first opportunity they get, ha you know, he's made a mistake. I get what you're saying. It's not that he's bigfooting them, but he, you know, he's comes out of nowhere and he's the glory boy. Right. To me, it feels very natural. There's a, and again, you know, Michelini, we were saying about how he fleshes out these little tiny bit players, these little background characters. And I think there's a guy particularly called Milo, isn't there in the, um, yes, in this thing. And he's really like, you know, he's obviously really disliked Luke for a long time. And now he's really going to stick the knife in, you know. And that, to me, that feels very three-dimensional. You know, the Rebellion are the sort of the good guys as we see them, you know, as we as we experience Star Wars. They are the, the ones we root for. For them all to be lovely, nice people is too, that's not realistic. And I, what I liked about this is that you get to see that suddenly, you know, at the first instance, you know. and Even those people who supported them, they sort of have their hands tied. They do, like Leia. She has her hands tied, really, because... What can she say? Leia does have her hands tied, or at least she she feels like she has her hands tied because all the evidence is against Luke. Everyone saw him shoot shoot her down, and his explanation is basically like, magic told me to? Yeah, Uh, right. And and to your point, I think for a lot of people, you know, there's probably, I haven't really thought about it, but there's probably still a lot of people that are distrustful of the Jedi in general, because now, you know, now that we've had the backstory filled in, we know they Mm kind of let everybody down. And there's also been this big smear campaign by the Empire against the Jedi for the last 25 years. But the only context that they would, people now would really have for the Force is Vader, right? So, right, yeah. So yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought about it when I was when I was reading it, but but what you say makes sense. Yeah, and I think it's just more evidence, really, of of what a good writer uh, Michelini is. You know, he makes these. You know, it's very to me, it's very realistic. You know, it, it's a sort of reaction I can imagine people having you know not everyone has that a lot of people are really like nah it would never you know it would never never be you know luke would never do that and then other people are like well you know come on you know and it's very it's very nuanced and this is the thing you know on a larger subject now just talking about the whole series you know some people bad mouth the marvel series i think at its best actually it's very nuanced and i think it's very it deals with some complex issues and this is sort of one of those you know it's 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 way more adult and 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 nuanced than a lot of people give it credit for i believe um and this is a classic example of that you know um so at the end of this story something um happens that's also very important going forward which is we discover that uh shira brie is not actually 
dead. She's only mostly dead. Like Miracle Max would say, she's, <laughs> there's different levels of dead. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, Darth Vader has got her in this tube and he's like, well, let's see what we can come up with. And that's not going to come up again for several years. But when it does come up again, it's going to be mostly cool and kind of disappointing, but mostly cool. Uh, but it yeah. becomes very important much, much later on in Joe Duffy's work. That's it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'd like to thank my guest, The Confessor, especially for his patience in me finally editing this stuff. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening and tuning in. I hope you've found this interesting, uh, particularly because there's plenty more to come. Uh, So next episode, we're going to be discussing... Finally, Marvel's UK exclusive stories, including some Star Wars tales by Alan Moore. We'll also be talking about Annual 2, and we'll discuss the end of the Michelinie run and the changing of the guard or the beginning of the Joe Duffy run and the introduction of a bunch of new supporting cast members. So thanks again for listening, and as always, you can visit ClassicComics.org to join in the conversation.